Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. U-Turn friends, we are going on to the U-Turn podcast being six years now. And one of the things that has caused such a little ache in my heart is knowing that some of my absolute favorite episodes are lost in the sauce, like episode three with Annie Lala in the love category about why you haven't found lasting love happens to be probably one of my all-time favorite U-Turn podcast episode about love. So we wanted to do some U-turn faves, some throwbacks for you every single week to make sure that you don't miss some of my absolute favorite episodes. And we are starting this week with Annie Lala. So if you've ever wondered why your relationship doesn't feel right, your partnership, or even just you're out there dating or you're on your own and you're just reflecting, why is it that you haven't found that thing that you really feel like is right for you? This episode with Annie is so powerful, all about all the different subconscious ways that we're blocking ourselves from finding love. So without further ado, enjoy. We are bringing on somebody that is so close to my heart, and that is Annie Lala, the love and relationship coach that you never realized how badly you needed. She is a genius at connection and helping people create inspired relationships, uh, and she has been a personal help to me in my own relationships. So Annie Lala, welcome to the show. Hi, Ashley. So great to be here. So good to be here with you. Um, so talk to me. Um, what, I, you know, I, I was reading your blog and we were talking about this. Um, what would you say are some common reasons why people have not found lasting love or marriage? Um, you know, what do you think is blocking so many women out there who are strong, professional, and really want love in their lives? Well, I get a lot of clients that come come to me with this request. You know, I'm ready to fall in love. I'm ready to get married. I'm ready to have kids. And I'm having issues. It's not happening. So what I've noticed with women, especially if they're successful, reasonably attractive, if after three months of desiring something, particularly a partner, and they haven't found it yet, what I've noticed is there's usually something getting in the way that they don't realize. There's some part of them that has a fear. So they say their conscious mind says they want to fall in love, but their unconscious mind, which is like 90% of the hands on the steering wheel of their life, is basically terrified of it for some reason that they don't consciously know they're not aware of. So one of the questions I ask them is, what's something in your life right now that you enjoy, that you think you might have to give up if you were to suddenly fall in love tomorrow? And at first, you know, they can't think of anything. They're like, no, I would love to fall in love tomorrow. But when I dig a little deeper and I say, okay, I have this pill in my hand. And as soon as you put this pill in your mouth, you're going to fall in love within a day. Do you have any trepidation as you take the pill from me and start to move it towards your mouth? And I like have them listen to their body. And usually there's some fear that comes up that they didn't realize, like some kind of commitment, like maybe they think they'll have to give up their individuality or their freedom, or they won't be able to have as many cats as they have, or they won't be able to just jump on a plane and go off if they fall in love. And they have some story that's unconscious in their psyche that they think if they fell in love with their dream guy, they'd have to give this other thing up that they really value and what they haven't realized yet. 
They haven't even entertained the possibility that falling in love could actually give them more freedom, more spontaneity, more cats, more ability to travel and have adventures. And in their mind, they have some story that they're mutually exclusive. And until we uncover that unconscious belief, unpack it and make it conscious and give them access to a new possibility that actually all the things you're afraid you could lose, you could get more of, more success in your career. If you fell in love and had a partner championing you, being your trampoline and your sanctuary. So that's one of the first things I'd have women think about is, are they actually available for a relationship to dock in their life? Like literally think of a port or a dock on the side of a, a river or an ocean. Do they have space if the right relationship came along that it could dock into their life? Or if the right guy came along, would he feel like she's too busy? She's got all this stuff. She doesn't need me. She's got her life all together. There has to be an opening or a space for a man to feel like I could port here. I could dock here. And so teaching women how to become dockable mm. and actually available to love despite their desire in their mind. When I look at their life, does it look like there's a place to stop? You know, when you're walking down the street and you need to know the time or directions, you, you look at the right person to ask for directions if you're walking in a new city. And there's always someone rushedly walking past that looks like they have no time. So you wouldn't ask them for the time or directions. You'd wait for the person who's kind of walking, cantering along, smiling, who looks like they're available to be asked a question. Mm. They're dockable. They're dockable for an, a conversation, an inquiry. Most women think they're dockable, but they're like that lady rushing down the New York street. Um, if a, a guy would be afraid to interrupt them. Mm. And so that's, that's one thing I would have them look at. But I also think there's like a list of reasons I came up with at one point in one of my blogs that I think could women could think about when, if they haven't found their partner, if they haven't found a lasting relationship yet. And I could just go through them with you. Yeah. And you that would be amazing. Take them apart. Yeah. Yeah. So as you listen to this list, I would love the listeners to just listen to each item and think about which of them apply to you and to be really honest. Because mm -hmm. at some point in my life, these have all applied to me. So uh, that's why I know that they're legit. And it wasn't until I transformed these issues that I was actually able to find my partner, fall in love and, you know, have a family and a really exciting life with him. So here's the list. Are you a woman that treats men as if they're more important or less important than you? Because both are equally dangerous and they produce the same result. Either he doesn't feel met or you don't feel met. Mm. Or are you a woman that believes that someone should love you for just the way you are instead of looking for a partner who will actually stand for your greatest self? And what be does a that mirror? Mean? Yeah, mm -hmm. tell me more. What, what does that look like? Standing for your greatest self? Yeah, because I think that a lot of people have a story that like I want to just be loved for how I am and they have a thought about what that means and how that's going to feel. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like for somebody to stand for your greatest self? Well, one of the, I think of your romantic partner as a sacred mirror. Literally, it's a mirror that reflects all your magnificence, your beauty, and your glory, which is what a woman wants in her partner. But he also reflects places where you're playing small in your life, where you're acting from wound and fear and insecurity and not power and grace and courage. And he lovingly, as best as he can, shows you, um, you know, you're playing small here. You're, you can do better than this. I see a greater version of you that's capable of accomplishing this. And you're acting as if you're some like insecure woman who can't get it done. So being a mirror for your greatest self is a man who will risk your disapproval in order to call you out on something that 
if you were to able, if you were able to see that blind spot, you'd be able to transform places in your life that you're stuck, mm. ceilings that you've hit. You know, there, as women, we get in the way of our own success. We are all doing things that get in the way of progress in our career, of progress in romantic relationships, of progress in connections with our friends. And our romantic partner sees, sees exactly what we're doing that's getting in the way. Mm. They see our crazies. Mm. I mean, your partner sees your crazy better than anyone else. The trick is, as a romantic partner, is to be able to reflect to your, to your partner how they're beautiful and magnificent just as they are, like love them just as they are, and at the same time, stand for a future, greater, more extraordinary version of them that they get inspired to move towards. So that sometimes that's like a, a confusing idea. Like, how can they love me as I am and think I'm perfect and whole and complete as I am and want me to become another version of myself? It sounds like, like a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. But I think of a good example is, is my daughter, you know, who's four years old, but right around year one, she started to walk. She took her first few steps and they were like stumbly, bumbly steps. And she fell down after two steps. And what did we do when we saw her? We cheered and we clapped. We made her fumbly, bumbly first few steps perfect, exactly as they are, because they were right for her developmental level. Mm. We celebrated. But were we also standing for a greater future version where she would walk confidently, run across the living room and not fumble, bumble and fall? Yes, absolutely. We could hold both at the same time. They don't exclude each other. We didn't go, oh my God, she can't walk. Look at her. She can barely make two steps. We didn't criticize her for where she was now. We made it perfect. We clapped for it. Mm. And at the same time, we held a vision for a future where she could do even better. She could have even more grace, more power, more strength. So that's the trick in partnership is to be able to communicate to your partner simultaneously, which is an art form. Look, I love you right now as you are. I'm not leaving. I think you're extraordinary. And I know you can do better. I know together we could create another level of development and another level of strength, of courage, of audacity. And I'm going to clap for that version. I'm going to stand for it. Even when you fight for your own smallness. Wow. So incredible. You know, a relationship has to be a crucible for your own personal development. Otherwise, What's the point? Mm. Um, and also though, Annie, I know that sometimes it can, if you're with somebody, because growing can be painful and it can also be graceful, right? Like it doesn't, al- does it always have to be hard for you to grow? Or what are your thoughts about being in a partnership that challenges you, being with somebody who calls you forward, who has a whole bigger vision for you than you have for yourself, mm-hmm. but also someone who allows you to just be like, what are your thoughts on that dynamic? It's a balance. Mm-hmm. It's a balancing act. And the the hack I would give most men and women seeking to be extraordinary partners is your partner can never change into the next version of themselves unless they feel fully loved as they are now. Mm-hmm. So there's an order to it. Wow. You have to actually make them feel beautiful, whole, complete, loved as they are. And then once they feel that, they have the resource, the confidence, self-esteem to hear feedback on how they could do even better. So mm-hmm. when I give feedback on presentations or, you know, when I worked in workshops, I would say, here's what worked about your presentation. Here's what I loved and give a few points about that. And then I'd say, and you know, it would be even better if you had said this at the beginning or you'd given an example or you had closed with this kind of idea mm. or exercise. And so the trick is, here's what I loved. And it would be even better if in mm-hmm. that order, notice how, if you get feedback that way, you don't feel criticized, attacked, made wrong. Mm. You feel like triumphed, celebrated, 
and then encouraged for improvement. It's kind of like employment with your career. It's like the, the sandwich method. It's like, you're really great. Here's what you could have worked on. And you're really great. <laughs> yeah. But the, the trick is as a partner, you can smell if your partner thinks you're really great more than they're grumbly about the issue. Got it. This is with parents and kids. If your kid feels like you love them more than you're angry about the thing they just broke, if they can feel it in your voice and in your tone, they can hear your frustration and they can do something about it. But what most parents and partners do is they let their anger and their frustration and their complaint sound stronger than how much they're loving that person in the moment. And some part of us knows that's not right. I don't trust someone who's more angry than they are loving or who is more interested in complaining than letting me know how I'm amazing as I am. It's untrustable. And that's why the feedback doesn't land. Mm, so interesting. And as far as um, other mistakes, I know that I saw a lot around being rescued. And mm -hmm. I think that this is huge because I, I think a lot of the times it, it's probably subconscious. A lot of women don't realize that maybe they want to be rescued financially, especially when it comes to career and if they want to have kids or, um, emotionally. So what do you, what are some thoughts you have on women who can number one, realize that maybe they're feeling like they want to be rescued and they don't even notice it. You know, it's so deep rooted. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, the damsel in distress is a quintessential archetype of the feminine and it has, you know, it's value in typical blockbuster movies, but no goddess queen woman listening here, here on the, on this episode wants to be a victim. And yet we play out victim narratives in our head all the time. And if a woman is sending out messages with her body and her behavior in the dating scene, that she's wants to be rescued physically. Oh, I can't, I can't lift my suitcase. Can you lift it for me? I mean, sure. The guy can lift it for you, but some part of him is going, can this woman lift a child someday? Like if I mate with her, can she have a kid on her hip or can she like, can she handle reality physically? And if I'm away on a business trip, will she be able to lift things in the house? Like there's a, when a man's dating you, he's interviewing you and vetting you unconsciously. It's not whether you'll be a hot chicken bed or a nice companion. He's vetting you for whether you'll be an extraordinary mother to his child one day. Mm -hmm. Every man on every date is his chimpanzee is unconsciously checking for these criteria of will you be a good mother is your womb a good place for my future child will you raise good children and if you can't if you if you need to be rescued physically then that is a tick box against that if you need to be rescued financially well great maybe the man can provide and that's not a big deal but what if he dies what if he gets hurt and is in a wheelchair can this woman hang and actually take care of the family mm. if shit got hectic mm -hmm. and i know no one says this but on some level a man is tracking can my woman take care of the system, the family system, if something happens to me? But what about men who That's, don't want to have kids? Like, is this still something they're looking at biologically? Even in men who don't consciously want to have kids, like their conscious mind is like, I'm done with that, or I've done it already, or I'm 70 and I'm not interested. The sex drive itself comes from the imperative to procreate. So these considerations are in the mating game, dating game, whether you're actually wanting to have kids or not. Mm. I mean, what is a fuck? Yeah. <laughs> a fuck is an attempt to make more of yourself so that you persist into the future and access immortality. Mm -hmm. Every sexual urge is a desire for immortality, whether you're wearing a condom or not. Wow. That's so interesting. 
And um, what do you mean with, I mean, you said intellectually rescued. So tell me a little bit so, about that. So, yeah, so women want to be physically rescued, financially rescued. Oh, he'll just come in and soup me up and take care of all my debts and I never have to work again. First of all, that doesn't sound like the kind of woman a man is inspired by. That sounds like a burdensome dependent. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a way in which I, I advocate for all my clients. I want you to be able to pay your rent and pay for your current life before you try to find your mate. Because otherwise you will always be financially beholden to this man. And just like with your boss, where you can never speak freely with your boss because you could get fired. There's a power iniquity when a man holds all the financial clout. And it doesn't matter if the woman's like, you know, I took a year off, didn't work. My husband took care of the the whole family system. It's not that she's not making money. It's whether she can make money. Me knowing that I had choice around making money or not, it makes all the difference. Mm. So it's not like a woman needs to, because that's what I was going to ask you is like, I think a lot of women have gotten some clarity and I think there might even be some shame about this where some women, when they really check in with themselves, they're like, you know what? I don't really want to be involved in the workforce. I want to be a mom. I want to have kids. Um, and it's not about being rescued. It's like the vision that they hold and the role that they want to step into. So what are your thoughts there? It's just about being sure that they're capable of financially providing. Yeah. I mean, if a woman gets married to some man right out of high school from her parents' house and never learned to pick an apartment, pick a sofa, know what to do on a Saturday on her own, like build her own independent eyehood and be able to pay rent and cover her life. Some deep part of her soul doesn't ever feel self-sufficient and safe. Mm. So it's totally fine to give that up. If you agree on that dynamic with your partner, you agree to stay home with the kids and he's going to take care of the money, but her knowing that she could make money and could take care of herself if she ever wanted to gives her a a power to stand for her needs in the relationship, to defend her requirements and to not just abdicate and martyr because who knows if she's completely beholden to him financially and doesn't think she could ever hack it on her own. She will be, um, she will be a possession Mm. and he will unconsciously, they will both unconsciously go into a, a power status hierarchy where he gets to assert what he wants more than she does. And she abdicates because, well, he's paying for everything. Wow. And so she's secretly afraid of that. And so I feel like you have to have some independence, financial independence, um, the, the, the knowledge that you could do it on your own so that he can feel you've got a backbone when you stand up for things. Mm, so powerful. And emotionally, what, what does that mean, emotionally rescued? Well, this is a really insidious one. A lot of women don't realize that when they fall in love with someone, they're actually falling in love with an attachment figure. And the first attachment figure you ever had was your mom or your dad, you know, whichever one you felt the most safe and secure with. And when you look for an attachment figure, when you were a young baby, young child, your attachment figure's job was to help you regulate your nervous system when you got scared, frazzled, overwhelmed. If a big doggy came up to you and you got scared as a three-year-old, mommy or daddy came and comforted you and soothed you with their tone and rocked you and made you feel safe. So part of the feminine um, idea is my attachment figure soothes me, makes me feel safe, says the right things when I'm scared and upset or angry and makes everything better. And that's fine for a child. But when you grow up and you choose a mate, your mind literally assumes that your mate is now your attachment figure. It goes from your parents to your mate as soon as you fall in love. And so you secretly as a woman believe that it's your mate's job to soothe you and make you feel better when you're scared and calm you down when you're angry. And here's the big deal. It's not their job. 
it's actually your job to figure out a way to take over from your parents the best they did and figure out a way to soothe, take care of, breathe into your own little girl inside, learn to figure out what she needs and nourish and honor her needs on your own first before you ask your partner to do it for you. Now, there's a pre and a trans version. So there's there's in um, there's dependence, which a child has on its attachment figure parent, and emotional dependence, physical as well. And then as you grow up, you become more independent. You have your own, you can wipe your own bum, you can brush your own <laughs> teeth, right? So you become physically independent. And as you grow up, you become more emotionally independent. You don't need mommy to model call you as much, to, to kiss your boo-boos when you fall when you're 15. And as you grow older and older, you have to learn that there's a little girl inside of you that you need to check in on regularly. You need to see how she's doing. Where is she getting, where's her needs getting thrown under the bus for other people? And you have to basically split yourself in two and become like a maternal figure to your, your little girl, to which is practice basically. to yourself, which is practice for future motherhood. Because if you don't know how to take care of your own inner little girl physically and emotionally, not only will it become a burden to your husband or your partner, it becomes a burden to your future children. Because if you can't take care of your own little girl, your kids end up ta- having to take care of your frazzled, dysregulated self, which is uh, most of us are mad at our parents. Wherever we were mad at our parents, it's because there was a moment where they regressed to a young tantrum, angry person that was a young version of themselves. And they didn't know how to regulate their own nervous system and take care of their own little boy or little girl, like your mom or dad is raging. And so you as a kid had to, had to step up and be the grown up and soothe them. Wow. And that's called the parentification of children. And you don't want to do that to your future children because that breeds resent. A child's job is to be a child. And it's the parent's job to figure out how to calm themselves down and speak with respect and dignity to their child. And so if you don't learn how to do it as as you're falling in love with your romantic partner, um, he will smell in you your inability to regulate your nervous system and soothe your own emotions. And you will not pass the would-be mother test. Wow. That is so powerful. And I feel like as people are listening, cause I know I was, I was thinking about all the, of the times where maybe I had a parent who was losing their shit. So, mm-hmm. you know, what would you have to say to so many women who are listening and developed men too, who are thinking about their parents going, you know, batshit crazy on some level. And they're thinking, well, yeah, I had to kind of manage my dad or manage my mom. Yeah. They were nuts. Like, how do they work with that? In- yeah and not bring that into their dating choices or their partner in marriage mm-hmm. choice? Well, when I work with clients, the first thing I do around that issue is I get them to share with me. And it takes some time because a lot of people protect their parents in their mind. Yeah. They have this delusion of perfect childhood syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like my parents were great. I loved my childhood. They were amazing. And it takes me a few times to say, it's okay. Your parents weren't bad and wrong. They were doing the best they can and they were extraordinary and they loved you. And... Did they lose their shit sometimes and your needs fell to the wayside or you weren't feeling love in that moment? And it's okay Mm -hmm. to admit that. It doesn't make your parents wrong. I help them deconflate their pain and their anger from blaming their parents. Most people have them conflated. If you're angry at someone, then someone's to blame. But actually, you can be angry that you just had a beautiful hairstyle. You walk out and the rain rains on you and you're really mad that your hairstyle's all flat. But there's no one to blame. You can't blame the rain. You can't blame the weather. It's just like that with your parents. If we can deconflate blame and anger and pain and just get the, I get my client to realize you have pain 
and you have anger towards that parent and it doesn't make the parent wrong, let's just honor that anger and that pain that your little girl has and let's give it a voice and let's give it a microphone and put it on the stage and I'm going to listen with deep reverence and sympathy so that she gets heard in her pain and in her anger and she gets to rant about why that was unfair without throwing her parents under the bus, without making them wrong. Once she has the ability to have that part of her, that pain and that anger witnessed, honored and dignified with a, yes, you know what? Your anger is sacred. Your pain makes sense to me. Like as a therapist, as a coach, when I, when I honor and dignify their pain and their anger, then it dissipates that compulsion to do it with their partner or their children. Oh, wow. So a lot of the times we're just playing out this pain and it's really just about it being witnessed and holding a space exactly. for you to experience it. And what about the intellectual rescuing? Like, it's so funny when you wrote that on your blog, I'm thinking, I'm picturing like the 75 year old, wealthy, handsome man and the like 20 year old model from Russia. That's what I'm picturing. <laughs> but then I'm like, maybe the 20 year old model's really wise and like of another, you know, kind of extraterrestrial smart and isn't being intellectually rescued. But that's what I picture is like this huge gap in wisdom or knowledge or understanding. Yeah. So what's that about? Well, I think it's really important to feel intellectually met when you're in love. Yeah. And I want you to feel met physically. I want you to feel met emotionally. I want you to feel met intellectually and spiritually. That's how you get the full package, the true love game that I'm fighting for that lasts an entire lifetime and pulls your greatness out of you before you die. Mm. Right. So intellectually, I think a lot of women either play down their intelligence because they think somehow it intimidates men or they don't develop their intellect. They, they don't read books. They don't develop a vocabulary. They don't figure out what do they think reality is? What's the meaning of life? Um, how, how did humans form on the planet Earth? Uh, what's the nature of physical matter? Like, I mean, my, I studied biology, philosophy, science. I studied this because I wanted to understand what this crazy thing is called being alive on this planet and having a body. Sounds like an What does it mean? Degree. Yeah, it sounds like an effective education. Tell me more. And so... I think a lot of women don't spend enough time and attention really considering the, co the profound questions of their own existence, why they do the things they do, the psychological underpinnings to their behaviors. And they're basically not practicing mindful reflection about what it is they do in their behavior and their actions and their thoughts. And when a woman doesn't take responsibility for figuring out what, what drives her, what funds her, what her own blind spots are, uh, what her own failings and trappings are. Like when I ask, when I work with clients, I ask them first question, what are some of the patterns you have that you've noticed that might get in the way of your intimacy mm. with, with the opposite sex? And like 30% of the time I get women that go, I don't know. I have no idea. It's a complete mystery to me. After 10 years of being in the romantic world, if you don't know yet, what, what are the things you do? Your crazy, compulsive, wacky patterns that might undermine connection uh -huh. are, then you're not paying attention to the feedback that people are giving you. You're not in an inquiry for personal development and growth. And um, so when I say being rescued intellectually, it's this idea that you're going to somehow be with a guy and he's smart enough for both of us. Uh -huh. I don't need to figure these things out. Uh -huh. He'll just like tell me them and I'll just listen and nod. And that does not lead for a fulfilling life for the woman. And it also does not lead to a fulfilling life for the man. So at some point, your looks go and you're not a slim Russian model and you're not an engaging <laughs> companion when you sit at a dinner table. 
of a Richard Gere, George Clooney looking old man and a mail order bride. Thank you, Annie. Um, I just, I think they, those are not fulfilling relationships. Those, when you interview those two people lying in bed at night, they don't feel enlivened and excited by their conversation with each other. And if you want a relationship to last forever, you gotta have that. Okay. Well, so that brings me to two questions. Number one, you talked about spiritual fulfillment. So I want to know what that means. And then this kind of lends itself to talking a little bit more. And I know we have a list to go through, but it, it also lends itself to talking to more about like where somebody can be radically honest about themselves. Like, you know, maybe somebody's in a relationship and they're listening to this and they're like, I'm none of these things with my partner. What am I doing here? So I think also just talking about that, but tell me about spiritual fulfillment. Well, you know, spirituality is a kind of edgy subject because some people are super devout religious people and some people are woo-woo new age and some people just believe that there's a universe and a reality and a set of phenomena that's greater than I can understand. And we can call ourselves spiritual. I, I'm more following the latter, the last category. I don't believe in a particular kind of God. I don't have any spiritual practices or mantras or religions that I practice. Um, but do I believe I'm part of a universe and a cosmos that is bigger and more complex and mysterious than I? Yes. And that is a affirming and exciting place to, to hold reality. Um, everybody has some views about it. I mean, even if you're atheist and you don't believe in God, you are struck by wonderment when you visit the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. You are struck by awe when you look through a telescope or see Hubble, Hubble telescope pictures of the, the galaxy. It's that quality of wonderment and awe that I refer to as spiritual. Mm, it's, it's the, you know, the ability to be enraptured by a piece of reality, a piece of poetry, a piece of art, a dance choreography, humans. I don't care if you're atheist. I don't care if you're religious, you are stopped in your tracks at the beauty of reality many times in your life. And if you could call those moments communion with the divine, connecting with something bigger than yourself, accessing the mystery of the universe, whatever. That's what I'm talking about. And so I think when you fall in love with someone, you fall in love with some aspects of their physicalities. You fall in love with their emotional development and the quirky facets of their emotional character. You fall in love with their intellectual rigor, um, the qualities of their inquiry and their curiosity. And you fall in love with their values around what has them struck with awe and wonder. I mean, you fall in love with where the other person sees poetry in the world. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is so true. And, but I also feel like Annie, sometimes there's like relationships that have more drama because there's like a poetry to drama for some people. What are your thoughts on that? Am I just making this up? Say that again. You think that some relationships are about drama? Yeah. Like some relationships, there's a lot of drama and they kind of feel like there's a poetry to it. Like, you know, we, we, the, the push and pull of like a long distance relationship that isn't working out. And it's like, we're meant to be together. Like there's so many stories or, you know, um, the guy who, um, has cheated on the woman five times, but the woman is like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to save him. You know, like there's a drama and a poetry. I think that people create out of the drama. So I'm curious, like, where do you draw the line between having a chaotic relationship that actually just isn't in your highest good? And, Mm -hmm where there's a poetry to being um, this beautiful being that is there for someone else. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think about food and the diversity of food that people like. Okay, some people like white mashed potatoes, peas with no spice, and chicken breast with no seasoning, okay? And then some people like spicy Thai curries. 
Yeah. And, and I don't have a moral judgment like one's better than the other, but there's a taste you get for, you know, Mexican food with a little bit of a zing or Indian curries with that extra spice. And some people add more spice and some people want no black pepper. Thank you very much. Cause that's too spicy for them. And so I think of it more like it's an aesthetic quality and a taste that you develop often in your early childhood from your family of origin. That's the family you come from. In that family household, if you grew up in a household like I did, where everything, pepper sauce, pepper sauce was like a permanent fixture on the kitchen table, okay? Yeah. You put pepper sauce in everything, pizza, macaroni, and cheese, like, and a lot of families don't come from that. So I grew up with a palate that was like, hmm, this is missing something, <laughs> a little bit of pepper. And in, in some families, you grow up with a certain amount of chaos and drama. Mom and dad, you know, they love each other, but they're like intense in the kitchen while they're making dinner. And some families are really quiet and docile and no one ever says a peep. And mom and dad's fight are like done with stairs across the living room, but no one ever yells. I, I think it sets a tone in the child for what love and relationship looks like. Mm. It's just in the soup, kind of like an accent. If you grow up in the South of France, there's an accent that your parents use and everyone in the neighborhood uses and you just pick it up and you speak it and you never think about it. Mm -hmm. It's just how reality is talked about. And then you go somewhere else and you realize, oh, you have an accent, but you don't ever hear your own accent. You only hear other people's accents. So someone who grew up in a household where there's a lot, of, not a lot of drama, mom and dad seem to never fight. Um, when they enter a relationship and the other person has like opposing points of views and raises their voice and get really intense and emotional in the conversation, they are like, I don't understand that. That's weird. That's like a, the mashed potato person confronting Thai curry for the first time. It's just, does it match your palate? And I think when two people find each other and try to make a relationship work, it's often because they have a similar palate for intensity. Like when I met my husband, he was like super, he was like, we would have like fights over who could handle more spicy in our Mexican food. Oh. And I loved that. I was like, I could never date a guy who couldn't handle some spice. <laughs> and so I, I think couples have a gravitation towards a certain level of intensity and chaos and drama. And some are like, no, that's not for me. I like my plain, no simple, no drama, no confrontation. Um, and I'm, all of them work. I've noticed, though, in my research as a love coach behind the scenes in relationships, that the most successful evolutionary relationships, the ones where the couples are really committed to personal growth and development and they stand for each other and the relationship as a crucible for actualization, I th in those relationships, I notice there's usually a lot more drama, a lot more conflict, and it's usually in the first two years. Huh. Like, just Because they're figuring calling. out, they're literally figuring out their power dynamic, um, their values systems, two different realities are trying to tessellate. It's like two galaxies crashing together, mm. trying to figure out a way to be one. Mm. And that's conflict laden. And, and couples who get that out of the way earlier on quicker and with more intensity, I see, I tend to do better in the long term, sustained game because they've hashed it out. Mm. I, I knew a couple that didn't fight at all for four years and they would like, they'd watch me and Evan fighting and they'd be like, Oh my God, you guys fight so much. And kind of almost like compare and contrast. And you know, Five years into their relationship, they dissolved. They couldn't make it because they had one fight that was really the fight of all the fights they never had, and they didn't know how to resolve it. And so I'm suspicious often of couples who say, we don't fight, we get along. What, I, what I'm suspicious of is that people aren't really representing their truth, and um, the conversation isn't going deep enough to the place where they have different opinions. Mm -hmm. It often comes out when they have a kid. Mm -hmm. That's when the shit gets hectic and they're like, wait a minute, I don't want to raise them with this religion. Well, I want to raise them with this religion. I don't mm. want to be vegetarian. 
they need to eat meat and these things come out later. So I, I think the power struggle in couples, this fight phase is actually about working out the what thing. are the best values from each person that we're going to keep and the rest throw away. Like we're almost like taking the best from each family system so that we can keep that and inject it into our future child. Mm, beautiful. This is so interesting. And Kind of going back to your bullets, because these are so amazing about why you haven't found lasting love potentially or marriage. Um, you talk about being riddled by shame, fear, and helplessness, or you think true love is a fantasy that doesn't exist. I think there's so many women who are in shame or in fear and hopelessness. So what does this look like in your mind? Let's see. Um, well, I, sometimes I say I'm, I'm my, my tagline for coaching is I help skeptics believe in love. Yeah. And one of my superpowers is, is finding the skeptical, cynical part of a person, the part that doesn't quite believe anymore that they can have this dream or have this future or have this relationship or have this kind of love. And my theory is that every cynic is a failed idealist. Mm -hmm. It's a person who used to have dreams and beliefs and possibility. And at some point in their life, they went for something, they tried it and it didn't work. It broke their heart. And they kicked that dream to the curb. They buried it so deep so that they could never get heartbroken again. Mm. So I see cynics as having this closed, bitter heart. But in the middle, underneath all the armor, there's this little flame of the original idealism that still wants to believe. And so my job is to kind of infiltrate that armor and like get to that little tiny flame that's still going and blow on it so it can get bigger. And I can reconnect them to their dreams, their possibilities. Every child is born believing anything is possible, that they can be in love, that they could be whatever they want to be when they grow up. I think every human is born with this idealism, and I think it lives inside every human heart, no matter how chromogeny. Mm. And so being riddled with shame and hopelessness and fear is really me saying, I want to emancipate the skeptic, the cynic from that armor and pull it out into the light so that, that they're available for love. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so many... People who, when they talk about love, it's really coming from like a hopelessness as well. So that's, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like how can you create this epic love in your life if you're, if you don't have the hope it's there, it's possible. Well, how can you find something you don't believe in? Exactly. How will you ever find it? Yeah. So most of my work is helping people get believe. through their cynicism and believe not just that love exists and it's possible in the world, but that it exists and it's possible for them. Yeah. Once we get there, 80% of the work's done. And what about people who are, so there's another bullet you list of, you know, maybe people are not finding lasting love because they're desperately attached to being married with kids by a certain date, looking for a good enough husband. I mean, I relate to this with so many of my friends. It's like, we want to have a family and we want to find the right person. I guess there's a difference between wanting that and being desperately attached to it. Can you, can you paint the difference or paint the picture? I mean, literally I, this was from taken from my life. The, the man I was dating right before I met my husband was amazing, handsome, Columbia, psychotherapist, doctor, loved me, wanted to marry me and have kids, like, right, like, within months. It was everything. It was the full package. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's all here. And it was everything you could want on a resume, like, on, on the list. But something wasn't there. Something in my heart wasn't fully, like, I loved him, but it didn't have the thing that I'd read about poetry and literature. It wasn't the thing that I'd be fighting for with all my clients that I was fighting for them to believe in. And I could see myself going, well, he's good enough and he's handsome. And I had thoughts like this. Well, if we don't work out, 
it'll be okay. At least my kids will be good looking and, you know, yeah. he makes enough crazy thoughts like that. And I started to realize I had a, like a deep meditation when I realized oh, I'm selling out. This is what it feels like to sell out. Oh, I was God. 38 and I literally was like, my eggs are rotting in my ovaries. I need to, fix, I need to just get baby daddy, good enough baby daddy. So I could churn out these kids and have the family. But in a deep, <laughs> so in a deep meditation, this way and we don't even realize it the way you just put it so blunt. Well, I got so close. I mean, he bought the, the ring, met my family and, and had already like proposed. And I kind of said, yes. And I had this deep meditative experience where I had this epiphany where I like basically thought, realized I would, I had this dream that I would die if I stayed with him, but it wasn't like I would die physically. I would die. My oh, soul God. would die. Oh God. And I figured this out and I said, look, this is, can't work. And I gave him back the ring and I broke up with him and then I went to Burning Man and I had another sort of deep meditation where I went through this transformational journey with some friends and I realized, oh, I'm more committed to having a baby than being in love. And that's the wrong order. I need to be in love. And then from that love, create the possibility of a child with my partner mm. for me to have, for a child to feel like they were born of love. I mean, a child literally has every cell in their body with two pieces of DNA wrapped together from one mom and one dad. And if those parents aren't in love, there's a way in which those cells don't feel fully grounded. Wow. And I wanted my child to feel that I wanted my child to be born from love. So I have to be in love. So I got really clear. Um, I got clear in that journey. If I don't ever have kids, I'll have to, that the possibility that might happen. I'm 38 years old, but I'm not going to compromise on love. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to commit to love or bust. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'll look into children. Wow. Literally three days after that journey, I walked into a tent at Burning Man and saw a man giving a speech that blew my mind, brought me to my knees. And that man ended up being the, the man I fell in love with, my current husband and the father of my child. Wow. So it's about making a commitment in the right order. And part of my purpose in my work in my life is to help people believe in true love and to fight for that and never settle. Mm -hmm. So that if and when they want a family, it's coming from a super solid foundation that doesn't dwindle and dissolve over time after five, 10 years. So they have this broken family, which is not the dream they ever had in the first place. Yeah. And also what you're making me think a lot about, well, number one, I was in a five-year relationship. I called off my own wedding, which was a real shit storm of an event, but at the same time, one of the best things I could have ever done. And so I relate to you, but I'm also just thinking about how quickly you were able to find your person. And so I guess um, what this is really doing as you're speaking is popping the balloon that people are buying into about how maybe it's going to take forever for the next person to come around. Is there some sort of block there too, where people stay stuck because they're in scarcity? You know, they don't think it's going to happen. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, women, we are, we are goddesses. We are witches. We are creatrixes. There's, there's a level of reality where we work on the logistic physical plane where we go to work and we make money and we like, move furniture around. But there's another esoteric level under that, which is the realm of magic. And women work in this realm, whether they're aware of it or not. And the more aware they're aware, the more aware they are of it, the more they can navigate and use it to their advantage. And so I'm aware that there's a layer of magic. And if a woman hasn't found her partner yet, it's not because she's not going to the right parties or the right clubs or she's not wearing the right clothes. It's because she's not in the realm of possibility, which mm -hmm. is where magic happens. The minute at Burning Man, the minute I did that journey experience and I realized I'm doing it backwards, I have to stand for love and I'm going to give up. I have to have kids by a certain date. 
I'm going to give that up. Maybe I won't have kids. And I sobbed for hours coping with that. That was not easy. I was, it didn't mean I wasn't going to have kids. It meant I'm putting kids second to being in love. Wow. And I'm not prescribing this for everybody. I'm just saying, as soon as I made that call in my soul, my soul entered the realm of magic because that's the right, that is the right relationship. That's, that's how a child would want his parents to have come to the conclusion of falling in love with each other and having a baby. And in some ways, I actually think falling in love between two people is the future child of those two people going back in time and making them fall in love so that that child could be born to them. That's one frame I hold as a kind of poetic frame. So I made that decision in my soul and I entered the realm of magic. I was a burning man, which is where magic is generated at every corner. And I think that's why it was able to materialize so quickly. Wow. But when women stop thinking in scarcity, which is the realm, they look around, they go, I don't have enough money. I don't have time. If they remember that in the realm of magic, anything is possible at any moment, your dream guy could go around the corner at the Starbucks as you exit the door at any moment. Um, something could happen to you where an opportunity drops in your lap that changes your life, a book deal, a new job. These things are around any corner at any moment. And the only thing keeping you from them is the audacity to believe in them, mm -hmm. the faith, mm -hmm. which is what characterizes the realm of magic. So I guess what I'm trying to say is be operating in the physical real world where shit happens, but also keep one foot in the domain of magic where literally miracles happen. Yes. And not just like believing in them, but be, believing they're available, which I guess is the same thing you're trying to say. Because Think so. Well, the only thing that has them not be available is your skepticism, yes. is your cynicism. This is why it's so important for me to break through that armory. Yeah. And um, I know you talked a little bit about how some women haven't found or men haven't found lasting love because they're not willing to look at their patterns that interfere with true intimacy. Um, but what about the bullet you have where you're saying you're ashamed of sexuality and have a lot of unexplored guilt around it? Like, what, what do you have to say about that? Because I think a lot of people have different messages that they've bought into through their upbringing around sexuality. Um, what are you seeing in your business and working with your one-on-one -on -one clients with this? Well, let's be straight. Falling in love is mate, finding a mate and pair bonding. Even if you're not, if you're 70 and you find your mate at 75 and you know, you're not going to have kids, the imperative that's driving the coupling is called pair bonding in evolutionary biology. And it's so that a child can be created. So even if you don't have a child, those imperatives are still working. So whenever you find a partner or a mate, there's a part of your system, your animal chimp system, that is looking for a sexual partner. Sexuality is, I mean, when a peacock in the wild finds another peacock, they're not trying to find companionship and someone to watch Netflix with. They're looking to mate. That is here in humans, and we forget about it. There's a mate potential that's being run and you want to have sex with this person that you're mating with. And if, if you haven't explored your own wounds and fears and insecurities around sexuality and gone to work on them, then what you're doing is bringing them into the relationship. And this is for the man or the woman. You're bringing into the relationship and then you're, you're, you're asking your partner to choose you, you know, mate, partner, I want you to choose me as your sexual partner forever. Let's assume you're going for monogamy. I want you to only have sex with me, but you're ashamed of sex. You think it's dirty. You have issues around it. You've, you know, you might've actually had a trauma in your childhood. You were molested, you were trespassed and you've never had a good look at it and had support in um, nourishing and healing that wound. And so 
you, what happens in a lot of relationships is their issues are actually coalesced around their sexual dynamic. It's ostensibly about taking out the garbage or putting the cap on the toothpaste, toothpaste, or you don't talk to my mom nicely enough. But those are often cover stories for the fact that they can't find each other sexually. Mm. And they don't, their animals don't feel safe mm. to fuck. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work I do with people is on making one millimeter of progress around their sexual connection, which can give you miles of developmental shift around the rest of their relationship. Mm. And uh, what are some things that some people can do right now to explore their fears around sex? Because I know that this is definitely common and a lot of people don't realize they have it. It's so unconscious or subconscious, I guess. So what is something they can do to explore their fears around sexuality, their own sexuality? Yeah, and to release them. Find a, find a coach or a teacher that seems to have inspiring ideas in this domain. Mm-hmm. Could be could be a workshop, it could be a coach, it could be a teacher, it could be a program, a book, and get support. Like get to the root get to the root of what's actually going on. I mean, I literally went back, I think it was four years ago, and interviewed every ex I could find. Who I'm, all, who I'm in good relationship with all. And I said, okay, what were my crazies? What were my blind spots? What were my issues sexually? I just took an inventory because I wanted to see, like if I want to attract the most extraordinary man I have ever met to be my husband and mate, I've got to be the most extraordinary woman he's ever met for that to work, mm-hmm. right? A lot of women just want Mr. Amazing, Mr. Right, but are she, are, is she building herself into Mrs. Right? Because he's going to want the same level of caliber too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if if you have a lot of um, unresolved sexual trauma, fear, guilt, shame that comes from, I don't know, like super fundamentalist Catholic upbringing or parents who were rigid and really um, not like accommodating of your sexuality or shaming of you, these put kinks in your sexual character. Mm-hmm. And they get in the way of not just physical intimacy with your partner, but all domains of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Cause I think your sexual character is the backbone in which the rest of your character hangs. Mm. It's like the spine of the tree. Mm. And so making progress along your sexuality is the highest leverage place to do work on. So I literally, I mean, I've had, um, quote unquote issues in my sexuality with my husband, like, I mean, standard, I, I, I want more of it. I want more sexual attention. I wanted him to lead more often. I made a whole big story about, I'm not attractive. He doesn't love me. And then I, Finally, after a few years of that, I was like, I'm going to stop blaming him about why our sex doesn't work exactly how I want it to. I'm going to take on that there's something I'm doing that is not making it as frequent, as amazing, as magical as I fantasize. Beautiful. And I literally went to work finding all the best somatic therapists because I felt, you know, I was actually molested when I was really young by an mm. uncle at two years of age, so super young. Mm. So my first sexual imprint has, you know, early body trauma. Yeah. It, it's it's pre-cognitive even. And so I went to somatic therapist to work on my body and the way I hold my sexual energy and any um, places where it was stuck. And I mean, I've been rolling around on floors, punching yoga balls and yelling and <laughs> all kinds work, of crazy right? shit. <laughs> and every city I was living in, because we traveled a lot, I would find the best therapist in this demand and like say, okay, let's, where are my blind spots? Where am I holding back my own access to pleasure my own availability and presence during sex. And I went to work on it instead of pointing my finger over there. Like they should be doing something to make me feel safe. My husband should be doing this. My husband should be doing that. I just got bored of that. And I've noticed that as soon as I took it on, that every piece of 
non-presence or suboptimal sexuality that I thought my husband had. I had a symmetrical dancing piece that was matched to his. And if I could find my symmetrical dancing piece that matched the complaint I had about him and worked on that, his started to change. Mm. So you can do all the work over here. And so, yeah, get support. Write down. I would have women write down a list of all their shames around sexuality. Write it on a list. You don't have to show it to anyone. But figuring out what your shame list is and getting clarity about that because shames hide in secrecy. Mm. That's how you know what you're ashamed of is what you keep secret. Why you want to turn the light off. Why you want the drapes drawn. Yeah. Why you don't want him to go into your closet and find that thing in that drawer. Whatever you want to keep a secret is usually linked to shame. Mm. You know, outside of your bank account number and your pin. But anything to do with, I don't want people to know that. No, look underneath that. I don't want them to know it. It's about you feeling ashamed. Wow. And there's no problem with feeling ashamed. It's just if you don't know you're ashamed, you can't do anything about it. This is so beautiful. And also, I'm, you know, this is, I mean, so loaded. I think there's so much to sex. And I know sex is linked to creativity. And I'm so glad that we're talking about it. And I, I also... I see on your list, you're talking about being disconnected from your feelings and not sharing them openly with your partner. I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, yeah, that sounds like an obvious block to not finding lasting love, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of people who are very disconnected from their feelings. Uh, what do you have? What are your thoughts on that? And what can somebody do to start connecting more to their feelings? Yeah. Well, when a man falls in love with a woman, what he's falling in love with is the woman he feels the most alive around Yes. Now, no man's going to tell you this. It's not written anywhere. But this is what he's looking for. He's looking for the most aliveness. Of, for, he wants to be alive in his own body, in his own life. In order to feel alive, he has to feel the full spectrum of his emotions, which mm -hmm. most men struggle to do. So what he's looking for in a woman is a woman who can feel the full spectrum of her emotions. Everything from joy and delight and jumping up and down on the bed to terror, despair, and um, uh, um, shame. Mm. So... The more a woman can track all her feelings, tune into them in her body, and be able to express them in real time without blaming them on other people, and that's the clincher, is to be able to feel your feelings without projecting their cause onto others, getting that this feeling is happening inside of you. There may be things in your environment that contribute to that feeling, but the feeling belongs to you, and you have to be responsible for your feelings, as in learn to breathe through, tune into, and regulate them before you can make any lasting changes in your environment to, to, to so that those feelings are less um, likely to be caused. Well, this um, is a big deal because a lot of people think that their feelings are from other people. Like I'm angry because of this person. Yep. And I mean, I could go into an entire course around this, but yeah, it's, and it's particular in women, but when a man can see a woman is raging or shamed or despaired and he can see her feeling it, sobbing, crying, trembling through it, saying, I feel jealous. I feel ashamed instead of like, okay, typical example, woman's at a restaurant, man's talking to the waitress, waitress is attractive. Woman sees the man kind of feeling attracted to the waitress, waitress. And she on the way home in the car is like, Oh, were you attracted to her? I saw you attracted to her. You're flirting with her. Did you want to fuck her? I, I bet you want to fuck her. Well, why don't you fucking be with her? Why don't you leave me and go be with her? Because you obviously like her better than me. That's like a typical dynamic. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We all know from the sidelines that that woman felt jealousy. Mm -hmm. Maybe she felt insecure. She was PMSing and bloated and she felt insecure yeah. when the boyfriend was chatting to the waitress. What, what most women do not do is on the way home in the car say, honey, I noticed that the waitress was really attractive and I noticed she was chatting her up and I noticed in my body, I felt this contraction around my heart. I felt this tension in my chest. 
I was feeling jealousy. I was making up all these reasons why she's more attractive than me. I felt insecure about my belly being bloated and I feel overweight in my thighs. And would you just hold me when we get home and remind me that you think I'm sexy? Who does that? Nobody. But that's what a woman looks like who's sharing her feelings, saying saying what they are, taking responsibility for them, not making him wrong and projecting aggression. By the way, shame, jealousy, and envy always present themselves as aggression. They masquerade as aggression. So if your partner is aggressive towards you, look for shame, jealousy, or envy behind their claims of what they're upset about, and you'll often find it. So that woman who's bitching in the car, you should just leave her and be, leave me and be with the waitress. She's feeling jealousy. Mm-hmm. Now, if she was self-aware and knew, oh, I'm feeling jealousy, which is very hard to do instead of getting angry at him, he has all the room in the world to hold her and hug her and make love to her and make her feel sexy again. What he doesn't have room for is attack from his girlfriend when he didn't do anything wrong because she's feeling insecure and he doesn't even know she's feeling insecure. He's just confused about why she's angry. Mm. So, yeah, basically the more emotions, the more emotionally astute a woman is and self-aware, the more a man feels safe to to be beside her while she has all these emotions, the more alive he feels and the more in love he falls with her. Wow. Beautiful. And I mean, we're going through so many blocks to lasting love. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, I guess I'm curious to ask you, like, There's probably single women listening to this thinking, okay, this is maybe why I haven't found it. There's probably people in a relationship listening to this thinking, man, I feel so not like I'm in the right partnership. So what are some actionable insights you have for that person who maybe is in a relationship and they're listening to this and they're thinking, yeah, this isn't my person. How do I take a step back? Whether it's a marriage or just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. Well, first I'd say, um, it, I know it's a terrifying position to be in, to come to the realization that you're not in the right relationship and it's not nourishing your greatness. It's paralyzing. It's, it's excruciating. It's, it it feels like death because you're literally having to severe ties with your attachment figure, the place you go to feel safe. Mm. And so I want to just honor the Herculean courage it takes to entertain that truth and then to act on it. And then I would say, you as a woman, as a human being, have the right to feel before you die the most extraordinary aspect of being a human being. And that is the feeling of being in love with another human. Another human who loves you no matter what, through any circumstance, until death. Because until a woman, until a human feels that truth from another person, they will not be fulfilled. They will not know the highest game available to people in the human condition. I think Mm. being in love is the highest game available to us Mm. and to live your entire life and to never have known and tasted that is to have missed on the most exquisite aspect of your existence. So I'd first sell around that. And then I would say, you have a right to feel that before you die. And I want you to feel that. And you can, but you can't while you're in this mediocre pretend fake, everything's okay relationship, nor can your partner. And so I do not stand for mediocre relationships. I stand for only extraordinary ones. And so I wouldn't tell her to break up with them. I would simply continue to ask her questions, deep soul searching questions, the answers to which increasingly have her realize that she is selling out on this possibility for herself and her partner. And that I would want to reignite the part of her that believes that she could have this and that she deserves it 
and to go for it. And so that she would have the courage to not break up because this isn't good enough, but to set herself and her partner free to be available to that possibility mm. before they die. That's a, that's a proactive, exciting pursuit of, of excitement instead of, um, you know, they're not good enough for me or I'm not good enough for them. Cause I don't believe in not good enough. Mm-hmm. I, I, I literally think if you took your house key and tried to open my front door, it wouldn't work. And it's not because your key's not good enough or my lock's not good enough. It's because they're just not a match. Mm. And when people don't work, it's just because they're just not a match. Yeah. It's not because you're not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that. It's funny. I was talking to somebody and they were talking about how they ghost people. And I said, I've never ghosted somebody. I always just say we're not a match. And, uh, and because I, I believe this behind that, that it's just about a lock and a key. Um, and I guess, you know, this was for the people in relationships, but what about the single woman who's listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm ready to take action and maybe they will. What are some insights you have for them? Like, for example, before we started this podcast, you and I were talking and you said you really can't feel into somebody until you've probably had like 10 dates. Like, what are some thoughts you have for single women to consider as they are moving forward, working on themselves? Um, Because I know you have a lot of contrarian ideas uh, that are really powerful for women to consider if they're single and looking for love. Well, I think a lot of people in the dating scene write, write off the person across from them too quickly. Like within five minutes, they're like, yeah, he's not the one or she's not the one. And I, I really think it takes 10 dates to get a sense of whether this person is a possibility or not. Now, if you're totally revolted and you leave the date horrified and contracted, <laughs> I don't want you to go back. But basically neutral to yes should be a continuing yes. Because the person you're you're on the date with is practice. Every single interaction with a man in a proto-romantic dynamic is practice. You're, whoever you're dating is either the one or practice for the one. Mm. And the more practice you get, the better. And as a coach, I want you to be on the treadmill of practice as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I want you to keep going on the dates. And if as long as the person isn't driving you crazy and having you feel diminished sense of self-esteem and is contracting your aliveness. I I don't want you to put yourself through that, but if it's neutral, I want you to keep investigating because here's what I've realized. A lot of smart women who are into personal growth and self-development know, um, and, and also who are afraid of intimacy, which is what the real issue is around relationships not working. The guy that is right for them isn't, say there's three guys in an elevator with a girl and she, and there's three guys in there. There's one she notices and she's like, oh, I really like him. He's amazing. And there's one she notices and she's like, ew, I don't like him at all. And there's one she doesn't notice at all. The guy she really likes is like right away instantly is usually a guy that connects to a part of her attachment wound. So that fiery, intense, want to jump him, rip your clothes off excitement usually comes from some kind of wound that is fast and fierce and dies out quickly and does not a long-term sustainable relationship make. Usually. The guy she's revolted by, she's just not into him and that's never going to work. But the guy she's neutral about, that's where I think soulmates lurk for really strong women. And she wouldn't even notice him. And so I almost feel like if he's neutral, if if there's like, there's nothing wrong with him, he's sweet, he's nice to me, I just don't feel like it's the one. 
I would want, my suspicion is that she's looking for a particular shape of wounding that matches her attachment wound from one of her parents, which is what governs the true love imprint. Basically, whichever parent you had to earn love from the most is an attachment wound. It's one of the parents that you like never felt as loved as you wanted to. Could be a mother or father. And that feeling of not quite feeling loved in the way you wanted to imprints on your soul as an incomplete love attachment wound. And so what you do is you go out in life looking for a mate that gives you that same feeling so that you could replay the story that you originally had with your parents. But this time, at the end of this scene, with this guy, he'll give you that love that you never got from your mom or your dad. That's literally the, it, it, I mean, this is called the Imago narrative and it's from Harville's Hendricks. So it's not mine, but it gives a lot of explanatory and predictive power. And so most people think they're looking for the most amazing guy to get married to, but they're actually looking for the guy that makes them feel that particular brand of owie of not being seen, heard and loved that they have lingering from their attachment wound with their parent. And that's the guy that they're going to be attracted to. Mm. And so I want women to women to know that be aware that they're going to be attracted to that wound and be meta to it. Like you want the coolest, smartest, most attractive guy that will give you the least amount of that feeling so that you can train him and tra and in the relationship, get that love that you never got from your original parent. But you want the minimum amount of work you can do. You don't want the maximum. Mm. And so as women develop their self-esteem and develop their own sense of value and goddesshood and queenhood, they start attracting higher and higher uh, caliber men. Mm -hmm. So, I guess I can't remember the question you asked me, but I would be not so quick to cancel people off the would be interesting list. I would so only cancel good. off the people who are absolutely for sure. No way. Don't even want to see him again. Oh, if, amazing. And I'm also curious, Annie, like you've, you've spoken so much truth. And I think that this is such a powerful episode for pretty much anyone. I don't know how we managed to cater to the single people and the people who are in a relationship, but we did it so well. And with your blog post. And I, I want to ask, um, are there some books that you recommend people read? Like what are your top two favorite books, whether you're dating or in a relationship? My top two books. Um, so the first one I recommend, and it's an oldie but goodie. And I really love Gay and Kathleen Hendricks. I really love books about relationship written by two people who are in love, who've gone through the ringer and have mapped it. Mm. I, I trust those books more because they had to be in love collaborating to write the book. It's mm -hmm. proof. And so this book called Conscious Loving, it's an old one, but it really um, nails a lot of the friction and conflict patterns in couples. Great. And it was revolutionary for me. And I read it again almost every year just to remind myself. Wow. So I really love Conscious Loving by Jane Kathleen Hendricks. I do love Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks and his wife. It's a little more heady and kind of analytic, but um, it's a really powerful game-changing book. And I love... Like, these are for people in couples, but like, say if a woman's single, I really love the book by Miriam Williamson called um, A Woman's Worth. Wonderful. And Annie, where can people I mean, find you? Because I know that everybody's going to want more of you, whether it's your blog or you have the love test on your website. So where can people find you and find your love test? Yeah, I'm at AnnieLala.com. It's really simple. A-N-N-I. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A. -L -L -A. So double N and Annie, double L and Lala. And I've got a lot of free resources in there. I've got a lot of transcripts from teleclasses, blogs, videos from teaching programs. I put out as much free content as I can. 
but there's a great love test on um, the website that you can sign up and get sent to you right away. And it's 10 questions for men and for women, two sets of questions that when you go through these 10 questions, you'll know whether you're in love with the person you're dating or whether they're in love with you. Wow. And it's the best I could come up with to try and figure out. Cause a lot of people are confused. Like, Am I in love? Are they in love with me? But I think these questions will really get clarity around those. Oh, Annie, thank you so much. This has been so great. And I'm leaving this conversation as always really inspired. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't know if this has ever happened to me completely, but her work is so influential on my life. Her wisdom is so deep that I left the episode and almost always I feel like I have after episode thoughts kind of thinking like, dang, what do I have to say? Because she just threw it down and it stands on its own. But what I can say that I took out of the episode with her was to focus on how things and people make you feel, number one. And number two, to realize that sometimes it takes calibration and time to actually get clarity on how you feel. And these two things are huge. So for example, a lot of people are looking for the right job or the right partner in their love life, whatever it might be. And a lot of the times we forget to stop looking at the piece of paper with our checklist on it and start looking at how we feel. Because ultimately when you fall in love with somebody or you fall in love with your job, it's not about the job. It's not about the person. It's about how you feel in that job, how you feel with that person. And I think it's so important to realize in that, that it all comes down in life with everything to how you feel because you can have the coolest, most interesting person next to you. But if you don't feel interested, if you don't feel inspired next to them or whatever you want to feel, it's not going to do it for you. It's not going to move the needle for you. So I want to just give you an invitation now to start sweeping the decks and start to take a look at how do you, how does your job make you feel and how do you want to feel in your job? How does your relationship or your love life make you feel? How do certain people make you feel versus how do you want to feel? And by using your feelings as a guide to make decisions and also thinking about perhaps a time where you really loved how you felt and trying to put some words or memory on what was it about that feeling that was so great for you could be so powerful. And the second thing I talked about was not just getting clear on how you feel, but like Annie Lala had talked about is giving things time to calibrate. And this is actually really hard for me because I move pretty quick and things often feel to me like a yes or no. And I definitely trust sometimes when something is just a clear no inside of me. But there have been a lot of times where I make a decision to cut the cut the cord on something that I feel lukewarm about. I'm neutral. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I don't know. Those are the opportunities, be it in your career, be it in your love life, be it in your friendships, where I love what Annie Lala had to say, where, you know, if you're neutral, it means that there's no wound, there's no pain inside of you from your past being pulled to somebody that feels like home to you or, or a job that feels familiar to you in some way. A lot of the time we're drawn to things that feel familiar to us. So if we're in a state of neutrality, Often that's not triggering that wounding or that past memory, and we're often just present with something. And I love what Annie said to allow that slow burn. And so I'm really going to be taking this with me in my day-to-day -day life of looking at things that I'm neutral on. It doesn't feel like a no. Maybe it doesn't feel like a hell yes, but giving it the dignity of time to get that answer and to check in with how I feel. So 
in a lot of episodes, I can go on and on about what I think, but Annie Lala is such a force. I think this is one of my favorite episodes so far that I've recorded, and I'm so excited for you to tune in and for you to take action on all of her wisdom on how to find lasting love in your relationships, in your marriage, whatever it is. Whether you're single, whether you're with somebody, she's just so beautiful. This is Ashley Stahl signing off. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.